Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Jed Purdy, a law professor at Duke and author of After Nature, A Politics for the Anthropocene, as well as several other books, and the forthcoming Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. Jed, thanks for joining me today. Mike, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk with you. So I thought we might uh, get started just with the theme of, of your book and the theme of democracy and politics, and then maybe we could back our way into our shared interest in environmental law. So my first question for you is, what promoted or what prompted you to write this book um, focused on politics and democracy right now? What is it about our current political moment that inspired you to focus on on these set of themes? Yeah, what a, um, an apt question. Um, <clears throat> so like a lot of people um, since 2016, 2015, um, I've had the feeling that in the decades I grew up in, sort of late 80s, 90s, the aughts, Clinton and Obama years, um, we took democracy too much for granted. You know, there was a standard political science view that so-called consolidated democracies, um, systems that had had several elections with peaceful transfers of power, tended not to backslide. The history was a little bit of a, of a one-way ratchet. And there was kind of a larger view that if you had a society like ours, you know, high literacy rates, then seen as uh, secularizing, I guess we are still seeming to secularize, um, markets uh, well ensconced, that you were more or less at the end of history, as the catchphrase went then. Um, and I, I don't, I think in the course of taking um, democracy for granted, uh, we didn't think hard enough about what kinds of threats to it might be brewing, um, the ways that it could still be destabilized, or even whether we had really achieved it. You know, there was also a, an assumption in those times that whatever exactly democracy was, and we probably didn't need to be too precise about it, it probably looked a lot like what we were doing around here, since we were the most consolidated of the consolidated democracies. Um, all of that, I think, was sort of the the air and the water um, that we moved in when I was coming up. And I wanted to um, try to look behind those assumptions now that now that they seem to be shaken. I guess there are also super fast, a couple of more specific, like scholarly trajectories. Um, wrote a couple of books on environmental politics, one more historical, the uh, after nature, the other more contemporary. And in both of them, I found myself coming down in favor of what I called a democratic idea or principle um, and realized that I was also sort of at the end of my, the edge of my ability to say what I thought that meant. And I thought I owed it to myself and anyone else who, who cared um, to think harder and further about it. I'd say I came to exactly the same point with a scholarly uh, network or community that I'm involved in, the law and political economy movement or project which has been interested in trying to think about the relationship um, between state and the market, um, politics and the economy by way of the law, and has generally identified itself as pro-democracy, but I think has not really said what um, we think that means. So 
I guess to wrap up super fast, the big general sense that things are in crisis and it might be good to think hard about them, which I think I share with a lot of people right now, and then a couple of more specific um, lines of work that pushed me to try to think harder about democracy. Yeah, no, it's, there's a lot of, it, it all seems to be coming to a head it's at, some, at some level with respect to a lot of these themes. So what, one kind of question that I have just, again, just kind of bouncing off the, some of the ideas you just raised is, you know, I remember, um, you know, when I was a little younger, when we were both a little younger, one of the, um, you know, one of the big challenges if you cared about environmental uh, policy or, or really a lot of different issues was kind of apathy, right? There was a lot of talk of apathy back in the 1990s. People weren't engaged. It was hard to get people involved. You know, there was this, if you, you know, you recall the Bush versus Gore election, there was this idea of like, ah, the parties are the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter what happens with elections, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that that's definitely changed, right? Like there's a very clear distinction between the parties. People are really engaged in politics. I mean, for whatever his flaws, and they are many, uh, Donald Trump has really activated a lot of people to be involved, both his fans, many of whom were not particularly um, engaged, and, and people who are his opponents. Um, and so I just wonder, you know, it's, it's interesting at some level that on the one hand, during this period of time when there was a lot of faith in, you know, the kind of end of history, consolidated democracies, liberal mark, you know, kind of market, li- market liberalism coupled with, you know, light touch, you know, essentially regulation from a democratically accountable government, that that was the end state of human societies. It was also a time when, you know, people weren't paying that much attention to politics. And these days... When we have, um, you know, I think a lot of people are worried about the future of our democracy and worried about the future of the country, but they're also really, really, really engaged in politics. And I wonder if there's, or at least, you know, uh, more so than in the past, I wonder if there's some relationship between these things where um, it's, you know, where when we're feeling confident in democracy, we don't do democracy. And when we're feeling less <laughs> confident in democracy, we do more, uh, we participate more in, our, in, in democratic life. That's a, a great set of observations. Um, I share in all of them. Um, in terms of the last sort of formulation, I guess maybe. Um, I mean, here, so here's something, a, a thought very close to that, I think. It may just be putting the same thought in different words. Um, I see this time we're in right now as one where... Um, on the one hand, left, right, and probably center, actually center, definitely, um, people have begun to ask much more of politics than in the 90s, in the long 90s, maybe like 1989 through 2011, the financial crisis or something like that, um, for a bunch of reasons, basically because a bunch of um, things we rely on, it turns out, are not going to take care of themselves at all. Um, Climate change is an obvious example, but um, economic inequality, financial markets and their crises and disruptions, um, addiction epidemic and overdose epidemic, pandemics, um, we could could go on. Um, So whoever you are, wherever you are, um, you 
recognize that we need to do more needs to be done of a kind that really needs a, a strong and directed state involvement. On the other hand, um, our sort of uh, confidence to think we can get it done through politics and government um, is, is low um, and maybe uh, low for some good reasons, good reasons having to do with the constitutional barriers to legislation and getting anything done even before the Supreme Court gets involved. Um, and also low because, you know, to, to be able to act on a, on a big scale politically, like think about something like major climate policy, you both need the institutions of government to be able to like pass a law. Um, and then you also need enough legitimacy and, and buy-in at a bunch of different levels that you can make it stick. Um, and the intensity of our, um, as they say, affective polarization, like hating and fearing each other is such um, that it may, we may go further and further in this direction that disloyalty to you know, any institution that's run by the other side is a kind of loyalty test. For your side, I mean, maybe a way of, of capturing the the paradox that we need more, and we know we need more from politics, but we have reason, a growing reason to doubt that we can get it, that we can do it, um, is in the last election, highest last presidential election, highest turnout since 1900. About 90 percent of voters on both sides said they thought that if the other candidate won, there would be serious and lasting damage to the country. Um, and so we can be mobilized but in this very uh, fiercely defensive kind of, kind of way from both sides. It seems to look more like trying to stop disaster than um, like trying to get something done in a more constructive sense. Yeah. And the, one of the, the, that kind of negative partisanship, basically, that you're that you're describing, that is really on overdrive, uh, conflicts with um, one of the themes that I think you draw in the book that is very important and probably underappreciated um, kind of feature of democracy, and it's something that again I personally have just come I don't know to terms with is the right idea, but but it is it is this that part of what democracy is all about, or maybe the thing that democracy is all about, is that we're going to disagree with each other. And then a lot of time, you're not going to get what you want, right? That there's this decision rule that we have in democracies, which is that majorities win. If you're in the majority, that's great. If you're not in the majority for a particular election or proposal, you're going to lose. And you're going to accept that you lose because you have a higher level commitment to, you know, democratic principles. And, you know, there is something about that, I think, <laughs> that conflicts with the idea of the only reason I'm going to the polls is because I think if the other side wins, it's going to be a complete and utter disaster. And I might be kind of willing to say, I guess the question is, are people really willing to live with an outcome, even if they recognize that it's a majority vote, if they really think that the country is it will be disastrous for the country? I mean, in some sense, should people accept the results of an election if they actually think it will be disastrous uh, for the future of the nation. Right. Um, great way to put the issue. Um, I'm 
inclined to again sort of share your description and your sense that the the issue of course is is a very hard one at at some point um of course there's a real question of political judgment about whether your loyalty lies to the institutions in place or to some higher principle if you genuinely believe that you're on a course to disaster i think we're in a situation where one of the most effective ways to um raise a political movement certainly to raise political money uh, and the trump campaign in a sense began as a marketing campaign and won its first election by accident and then became a vehicle for a bunch of you know a bunch of different agendas as it sort of it uh it turned by mistake from a marketing campaign to a social movement that became a successful presidential run um uh parenthetical but i i mention it because it is a sort of highlight it because it's a paradigm of um how you in a sense succeed in politics as a form of recruitment of of people energy money marketing um which is by persuading people that it's it's either you or the abyss that we've got to mobilize to stop a disaster the famous uh, flight 92 election formulation on the on the trumpist side about the 2016 election that this was this was do or die then sort of became the generalized sense all around in 2020 that this was this was do or die on both sides so like in a way yes there's a real problem at the extreme of political judgment about what happened what you do if the if you think the plane is going down in some ways all of our politics right now is about um people thinking the plane is going down everyone thinking the plane is going down but disagreeing about which way is down um and it's 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 hard to go forward on that basis uh, to come back to your original point i just could i couldn't agree more and it's one of the themes of the new book that back when many of us halfway believed uh that there weren't really big questions in politics anymore the big questions were pretty much settled and as you said you just had to maintain electoral legitimacy for a kind of light touch state that would regulate things in broadly the direction that history and reason indicated so i think it became easy to think that since democracy wasn't really about taking hard choices because we knew the answers to the big questions it was like what was it it was like a, it was an ongoing conversation it was a sort of practice of shared exploration you know there were a lot of kind of conversational metaphors about what we were doing the conversation that never ends um one of the worst things you could say in the in some portions of the 90s about a certain kind of intervention was it was an argument stopper you were like don't do that don't stop the argument you know keep the argument going that was the idea um and i think we're we're driven back now to seeing that as you said democracy really is a decision procedure this to say it's really a mode of rule it's a way of getting an answer to questions which are going to have to have an answer one way or another and even not answering them is giving them an answer climate change is a paradigm again but one of many um and for that to work people have to be willing to just as you said stand still for 
the result. Um, and what we've just been saying about the um, way that our politics is specializing and giving people reasons to think that we're in an existential moment of partisan conflict all the time is that it's always generating reasons for people to think that they that they shouldn't stand still for the answer. And that is actually kind of a uh, um, self-immolating dynamic in a democracy, I think, if people are being mobilized on the view that the system itself might not be uh, might not be um, legitimate. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a, an element of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if both sides feel like the other side won't give back power <laughs> after the next election, then they are they have to kind of preemptively hold on to power, right? It's there's kind of like a first strike problem there, um, mm-hmm. which is really dangerous. Actually, that's it's really dangerous. Um, just on the on the kind of the yeah the conversation stopper point that so that's another theme that I found interesting and and I again I kind of share some of the instincts but I, I wanted to probe on this a little bit um, more was that you kind of referred to it in the book a couple of times as the politics as talk and w- one thing I wasn't sure about to what extent you were referencing kind of deliberative democracy as a model for, for democratic decision-making and, and kind of a normative model for what democracy should be, as opposed to the one that you're offering, which is more of a, in a sense, it's an older uh, mm-hmm. style of thinking about what democracies are about, um, that, you know, either it's majoritarian or maybe if we're thinking kind of mid 20th century is that you've got various groups um, in society you know, uh, small interest groups, big groups like labor or workers or whatever, and that, you know, we have a pluralistic society, we form coalitions amongst each other, and then we uh, we try to get a majority, and then we use the organs of government to pursue our interests. And that's that was, in some sense, that view was, in some sense, supplanted or challenged by the deliberative democracy view um, that it is in some, you know, like, again, this is a normative vision that Part of what we're trying to do is reason collectively together, arrive at joint decisions, uh, listen to each other, you know, be open-minded and amenable to changing our views and that kind of thing, which there is a, a strong contrast between that deliberative model versus one that's really about interest group um, or interest negotiation, mm-hmm. uh, bargaining, coalition forming, and power. And so, uh, th- so one, I guess that was just kind of a, a question is, is that how you see yourself uh, fitting into that other kind of conversation that's been happening about democracy over the last several decades. That's <clears throat> that's great. Um, so yes, I, I, I like the way you put it. Let's let's sort of work backward um, from the deliberative democracy um, stuff. So I think, like most reasonable people, I think that the, the civic virtues of open mindedness and um, the ability to listen and engage in good faith and give reasons are really important <laughs> and, and they're endangered right now. Um, and that some of the experiments in um, sustained large scale, but human scale deliberation that people like uh, Jim Fishkin and a bunch of others have, have done the political scientists most recently at Stanford um, so that's all awesome. Um, however, there was always an equivocation in that world, especially uh, in some of the more abstract political theorists, I think, um, between saying that the practice of deliberation was a good one and tending to say that deliberation was actually 
the point and that you would get to the right answer if we deliberated together, that a certain form of deliberation could basically replace the crudeness of decisions. Deliberation stood for reason and decision-making. Mere voting stood for what some philosophical traditions, uh, including a, a long history of German thought, uh, really going, going back to Kant and earlier, would call the arbitrary will, um, you know, not, not reasoned, but simply deciding. Um, so I think there was a tendency to sort of uh, uh, talk down and want to get away from the aspect of democracy that is decision-making. To come back to the argument-stopping point, stopping the argument is actually the point. <laughs> it doesn't succeed if it doesn't stop the argument. And then, of course, you pick the argument up again, but, uh, but it does at some point stop. Um, so I do think it's absolutely right to say that a liberative view sort of supplanted the pluralist interest group view associated with, among others, the uh, early work of, of the great and long-lived Robert Dahl. Um, and I actually am sort of sympathetic, to, I am sympathetic to an, an even earlier view that is more majoritarian, uh, persisted in the thought of uh, E.E. Schneider, who was a great theorist of the, of the uh, political party, a couple of terrific books. Party Government is well known and has had a little bit of a revival. The Semi-Sovereign People is less well known and is a terrific little book. He's, he made the point that um, interest group pluralism has a very strong class structure. Um, it's basically people with resources are the ones who are able to organize interest groups effectively. And it's not only the um, public choice kind of argument about um, you know, highly focused interest groups and concentrated industries and, and so on, being able to engage and capture politics effectively, which of course is true. Um, it's, it's, it's a broader sort of skew of the, you could say it's more of the Thomas Piketty uh, kind of lens, like those very broadly, those in society who have, will have a lot more capacity to work interest group politics than those who have only their votes. Um, I think the vote is a great equalizer and the majority decision is a great expression of political equality and that there's a lot to be said for putting that image first in our thinking about democracy rather than being a little embarrassed by it as something crude, which I think is uh, uh, has sort of been has been the tendency and was the implication of some of the uh, deliberate some tendencies in the deliberative democracy uh, mood. Yeah, and, and you know, just kind of following on with that, I think one of the critiques that you hear of the deliberative democracy. Um, kind of theory, say, uh, as a normative theory of what democracy should look like, is that it has class implications as well, right? Who kind of has the resources to participate as a deliberator, as a deliberator, um, even in a, you know, quote unquote, neutral forum, um, you know, by virtue of education or talent or inclination, some people are, are going to naturally have um, influence there uh, at the expense of others. It's, it's, it has an elite kind of, um, element to it, which might explain part of why elites found it attractive as a, as a model of democracy. It's true. I want to, because I'm sympathetic to that, I want to at least entertain the counter argument. You know, um, as you know, there's a lot of effort to 
engineer procedures in deliberative democratic settings that will counteract charisma and the ways that charisma and rhetorical ability can track other kinds of, of social status. And I think it's kind of worth observing that even at the, at the limit, there's a view um, associated with this unfortunate term lotocracy, as in government by lottery, um, that you can achieve a superior, indeed a more democratic form of political representation than through elections if you just get a random, literally random, um, but but demographically uh, representative random uh, set of the population into a room with the right procedures, the decisions they come to will be more representative in almost a uh, snapshot, photographic sense, uh, mimetic sense, um, than... Uh, than an election will be, in part because it's supposed to correct for all the kind of, um, all the systemic ways that we're not in the same position as out there in the real world citizens. Um, I'm actually very, I'm, I'm skeptical of that for a, a, a bunch of different reasons, including who watches the watchers, who, who, who um, creates the systems that put everyone on the same uh, footing. Um, but al also just because it is literally a, de a departure from voting as the key thing in favor of you know, um, forms of representation that actually don't go through majority formation at all. I mention this because it's, it's very, been very fashionable in political science and a certain kind of very uh, thinky, uh, very abstract policy reform space. And I think it is as much as anything else, while it is interesting, it's sort of an emblem of our, like, continuing desire to get away from having to form majorities. Right. You know, it's, it's as I'm glad you brought it up. I actually had put that on my list of questions for you because I was curious what you thought of the kind of latocracy uh, idea. And I think there are, so, so it's interesting the, the who's going to watch the watchers point, right? I, I think in some sense, what I see is a conflict potentially there is, you know, you know, you, one can accept this or not, but I might be inclined to say, let's abstract away from me so the, 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 the technical details, right? And just to say, let's imagine we could come up with a representative sample and they voted. And, you know, it really would. I think there's a, a way to say that it really would very be much more likely to reflect the preferences, right, of you know, of the entire political community, right? If they voted on a proposition, uh, you know, should be you know, whatever the proposition is, uh, should be passive, should we borrow money and spend it on schools or whatever it is. And that, you know, it's a kind of up or down thing. And what we, if what we want to do, if what we mean by democracy is that we want that decision to reflect the aggregated preferences of all of the people in the political community, then there's an argument to me that the, you know, the, the lottery representative sample would do a better job of that than voting because, there's always going to be a selected group of people who are going to vote. Not every single person mm -hmm. is going to vote. And as a consequence of that, it's just going to distort the outcome. And it'll be less likely to kind of reflect the aggregation of the preferences. What's different about it, I, 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 for me, is that it doesn't involve an, the act of voting by, by nearly anybody, right? It's just a tiny little mm -hmm. group of people. Rather than, you know, we all get in queues and we line up and we engage in this act of voting. So I was curious, just your thoughts on the relative importance of those two things. Like, you know, 
actually reflecting the aggregated preferences versus the act of voting. And I guess part of this too is, and this is where the deliberative democracy people would come in, is they would say when people, when the regular, when everybody is at least allowed to vote, there's a, you know, there's going to be an inclination to at least go out and convince everybody rather than convince the smaller representative sample. Yeah. Great. Um, that's great. So I, um, first off, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, I think the most sort of most distinctive thing to say in response to that. I, I really agree with you that the, um, in fact, that most people don't vote in the strong autocracy system. Um, that it's not vote. Most people voting is is not part of the pure form of the system. Actually, matters a lot. Um, I think the act of voting is important. Um, and here, I'm I'm very sympathetic to a series of arguments that the uh, historian of political thought Richard Tuck has made most recently in a set of Tanner lectures uh, a couple years ago. Um, that. We significantly undervalue voting in our sophisticated, quote unquote, ways of talking about it, in part because we're too beholden to the um, view that it's only the decisive vote that counts and that since most of us know rationally that we're not likely to cast the decisive vote, uh, most of us are just throwing away time when we go to vote and it's a puzzle why people vote at all. his view is that actually it's it's just as rational and historically the predominant view and, and pretty intuitive, probably the intuition that a lot of people have, that if you if your vote is part of the set of votes that add up to the sufficient number that forms a majority, um, then you, in a sense, made the election happen. Not all by yourself. It's not the nature of an election. You would do it all by yourself. But let's let's say there's a million vote difference and 30 million votes are cast, you know, most of the people who voted in the majority are going to be in that, in that efficacious set. Um, and they did something. It's not just this, this one impossible to find needle in the haystack decisive voter who did something. So I actually think that's real and it's, it's not, it's not empty. I think it's the intuition a lot of people have. Like I think a lot of people do think that if they voted in Georgia, for Joe Biden last time. <laughs> they helped elect Joe Biden. It wasn't just one of them. Um, uh, I also, um, I think on the, on the flip side, um, one of the most sympathetic, you, uh, the importance of, of translating aggregate preferences, I think one of the mo- reasons that the latocracy idea is sympathetic and attractive right now is that politics in other respects. Lawmaking is so stuck. And part of what's appealing about it is just the thought that you could get things on the agenda and even make things happen, depending how much power you're giving your citizen jury, citizen, uh, your, your random legislature, um, that can't go through our, in our uh, broken lawmaking systems. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's absolutely real, a stronger majoritarian system that relied on voting would be a lot closer to getting something done than our, being able to get things done than our Madisonian, um, Rube Goldberg blocked up system as well. So I think latocracy and stronger democracy are, are two ways to a goal that almost any thoughtful person shares looking, looking at this um, 
system right now. So I, w- I wouldn't want to give that um, card exclusively to Latocracy. If you come down to a competition between Latocracy and a majoritarian system that works better, then I really do think the key thing becomes the fact that when you're when you have parties and candidates and movements trying to persuade a majority of everybody, you get a different kind of mobilization, a different kind of argument. New issues may come on the table. Without wanting to romanticize mass politics, it does have a creativity and a capacity for surprise that you will never get if you're just essentially refining your polling technology to find out where people are in a certain pre um, political or pre-mobilized way. So litocracy in a strong form tends to accurate representation of a polity that is in some ways also depoliticized. And that seems like it gives up with one hand a certain amount of what it, what it gets with the other hand. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just to, you know, the surprise, the capacity for surprise is, is very interesting. And, um, you know, so po- one way to to restate that maybe a little bit is that, you know, there's something creative about the act of politics. The litocracy in some ways takes people's preferences essentially mm-hmm. as um, fixed. And then maybe there's a little deliberation, but it's not as creative a process as, and certainly it's not as collectively participatory as a process as, as a mass campaign. Of course, surprises can be good and bad. They sure can. As we see in our politics, you know, but um, it really is, it's, it's quite a ride no matter, no matter what. Um, so maybe we could think of like, there's three things now on the table, right? In terms of people's commitments, there's commitments, um, to, to democracy, uh, the, as you were mentioning, you know, our kind of Rube Goldberg, Madisonian uh, checks and balances, separation of powers system, we could call that, you know, say U.S. constitutional governance. Now, constitutional is a, what, what amounts to the content of our constitution is, of course, a, a, um, a, a controversial question, but there are certain things like there are two houses of the legislature, Senate's apportioned according to states, you know, various things that we all kind of agree are part of our constitution and um, do inhibit lawmaking um, or the translation of majoritarian preferences into law. Um, and then there's people's substantive commitments, right, uh, to environmental quality or uh, equal uh, equality, uh, criminal justice reform, women's rights. And, you know, these things can come in conflict, right? Democracy and, uh, you know, our constitution come into conflict. Our constitution and our substantive commitments can come into com- conflict. Democracy and our substantive commitments can come into conflict. And so um, I think maybe, you know, since we are both interested in environmental law, there, there do seem to be some pretty serious conflicts here on important issues like, say, climate change or um, protection of endangered species or ocean you know, protecting the oceans, you know, plastics, you know, the kind of the mm-hmm. wide range of issues that are, you know, are really serious uh, from an environmental perspective. And there's kind of two ways to think about this, that, you know, the, the inability or the difficulty that we've had in addressing a lot of these issues, some even mundane things like uh, improving water quality from, you know, farm runoff. Mm-hmm. One possibility, and I think this is when I kind of get a little bit in, in the you don't really discuss these necessarily straightforwardly in the book, but um, one possibility, let's say, is that it's the constitutional governance, at least the way our, our constitution is set up or the way that we interpret our constitution now that's inhibiting our ability to deal with some of these things. And if we were to have more majoritarian institutions um, that were more democratic, we would be dealing with these things in a more straightforward fashion. There is another possibility, which is that 
um, given people's preferences and beliefs that actually, you know, say I have a substantive commitment to, you know, seriously address climate change. And that, that just conflicts with what a majority of people want. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I'm curious, you know, just how you think about how to manage these different types of conflict, because as we were talking earlier, part of what it means to believe in democracy is to accept that you're going to lose on some or many of your substantive um, things that you care about. Yeah, totally. Um, so again, that's, <clears throat> that's really good. Um, so we know what the Madisonian system plus um, our Supreme Court has now constituted looks like on this, on this front, which is, is basically D minus. Um, and we don't know what a system would look like in which elections had policy consequences and policy consequences had electoral consequences in a more direct and legible kind of of feedback system, which I think is generally a good thing for politics. It's a good thing for giving people a sense of uh, responsibility and capacity. Um, I think the fecklessness and irresponsibility of a lot of our politics and at least one of our parties, maybe one and a half of our parties um, around these issues and others is enabled, at least in part, by how poorly our system translates elections into results such that it, it can seem sensible to be sort of nihilistic about the whole thing and, and actually assume on some level that on the one hand, the election is there to, is, is, is about saving the country from um, the forces of evil. And on the other hand, nothing's going to really be different afterward because nothing's going to get done. I think people have sort of a bifocal sense that, that both are true. So, so this is to say, um, when we look at the public, we have, um, we have a public that's formed by an, an ongoing engagement, not only with um, deep problems like the social media commodification of resentment and fear and all the kinds of systemic inequality that, we, that we've touched on, but also by engagement with the politics that is constantly teaches the lesson that politics doesn't matter or doesn't work in a constructive way. And still, you'll know better than I do, Mike, and I unfortunately was on the phone with our benefits office this morning instead of looking at the latest polling information. But I think that I, I think that the trend has been that people at least say that they want to do something about climate change, right? I mean the people people are doing better in that nominal, in that nominal public opinion sense than our system is <clears throat> is adding up to doing. So um so this is, is all a way of saying that you know, there are reasons to think that we'd at least get a, get a better test of what people will, um, will stand still for uh, or even mobilize for by way of um, the kind of climate transition that we need under a more robustly democratic system than their... Um, than 
either under either under the Madisonian system now or under a democratic system where what, what I'm trying to say is you just um, take a public that's been formed with all of the Madisonian dysfunctions and then immediately transfer it. Um, that's, I tend to think, a worse public than a public that has some experience with a politics that's more functional at decision making and, and generating results and generating um, useful feedback loops about policy and elections. I think if, if one doesn't think that that's true, then we, we really are in a very bad spot. Um, you know, environmental, as, as you know, environmental thought has always had intermittent flirtations with the idea that these questions are so important and so hard to manage through politics that we really need or it would be better to have them addressed through less accountable um, in some formulations, uh, even openly authoritarian systems. Um, I think... I think there's just no reason to think <laughs> that that path is really <laughs> it would really be open to us, even if, even if there were reason to um, think that it that it could work on its own terms. You know the the, the very famous learned hand phrase about how um, a country that doesn't believe in in liberty and the rule of law can't be saved by any constitution. I think a, a public that's really really um, indifferent to the fate of future generations and the planet is one that no um, technocratic engineering will be able to save from itself. But I don't think we're there, and I think we would we would do better uh, unleashing the public we have um, than going on in the. Um, in the in the crooked and high guardrails that that we're working in. Well, it's it's a little hard to imagine us doing worse at this point, <laughs> uh, you know, than uh, than the current system. To be yep. to be honest, um, yeah, no, that I mean that's that's a better nutshell than I gave. You know, I mean, it's an interesting thought. I mean, it's in some ways, you know, the the if 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 what we think is happening here is is the, a technocratic approach or an insider elite approach. Um, it's not working, and you know, at the very least, perhaps worth giving giving more democratic institutions a try. Um, I was curious to get your thoughts. You know, now that you know that this is the most consequential Supreme Court term in our lifetimes, I think that's that's probably fair to say, right? Um, you know, there's been a couple of important decisions, <laughs> let's just say the least. Mm. And I was curious your thoughts on them. Um, in, in the vein of kind of what we're talking about, the, the two maybe that I thought we might mention are the Dobbs decision, obviously hugely consequential overruling Roe v. Wade, and then the West Virginia v. EPA decision, uh, which also received a fair amount of public attention, although not in yeah. the same uh, magnitude. And that was a decision that made it uh, much more difficult for EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from stationary sources, power plants, yeah. uh, coal-fired power plants and the like. And um, and really, more generally, uh, endorsed a doctrine of much more skeptical review, let's say, um, towards uh, actions um, by administrative agencies to address issues like climate change, but also in other venues. And so the court in, those, in both of those decisions um, offers an argument essentially that, look, let's, let's get these decisions out of elite institutions, right? And Dobbs says, look, 
you know, um, the court never should have take never should have constitutionalized this um, matter. It's it's better left to political bodies, state legislatures in that case. Um, and then West Virginia is the court is saying. Congress, we can't imagine that Congress intended to delegate such an important decision to an administrative agency. And so we think that this is really appropriately decided by the legislature. And so I think the course formulation would be that these are going to be politics enhancing uh, decisions. We're getting decisions, we're deconstitutionalizing and we're de, you know, administri- administrative, you know, whatever the word is for, you know, administralizing <laughs> uh, the, these decisions. We're putting them back into more political bodies. Now, of course, we can argue about how democratic those bodies are, but at least they're, you know, they're not the same kind of elite semi-insulated institutions as we see with courts and administrative agencies. So I was, I was curious your take on uh, you know, that specific feature of these decisions. Um, you know, do you buy that? Um, is there a way in which these decisions are politics enhancing? Um, because in the book, you are critical of the, um, the tendency amongst progressives to want to, uh, at least some progressives or some or folks in general, to move decisions into elite institutions mm-hmm. like courts and administrative agencies. Totally. Um, that's 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 a great and uh, a great set of questions because a hard set of questions and Dobbs is a difficult decision for me to sit with for lots of reasons as it is for lots of people but for me in particular um, I'm both um, have I've always been not only nominally but sort of in an activated way strongly pro choice uh, in terms of what my family and I actually do out there and in, in our small civic way. Uh, and 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 also, I think that the court should generally have a smaller footprint in the country's um, politics. I, I tend to think there that in the ideal, um, with a with a better set. Well, actually, let me say the, the more general thing. It, it, I think all of the court's appeals to democracy and its its transfer, nominal or actual, over to the political process, are um, somewhat in bad faith because of the dysfunctions and misrepresentation, uh, skewed representation in the institutions um, it's handing them off to. Um, And to talk specifically about Dobbs first, to come back to it, I do think this is an issue where um, it, it would be appropriate and I would like to see uh, the majority view at the national level as for other questions of basic rights. Um, that is, I think that's the right scale at which to decide questions of basic rights prevail. Um, I would I would support um, the explicit constitutionalization of an abortion right. And in the view I advance in the book, under a more democratic relation to the Constitution, we'd actually have regular opportunities to consider adding um, to the fundamental law, something um, like an explicit uh, right to reproductive autonomy. Um, so I, I, everyone recognizes, um, and liberal jurists have in many ways internalized, that there are problems with freewheeling uh, judicial interpretation of the concept of liberty. We, in fact, we came up with that idea in attacking the Lochner era, which is why anti-abortion justices have so often 
anti-Roe justices have so often invoked the progressive critiques of the Lochner court um, in attacking Roe. Um, so that would be a better world. I, I'm hoping now that the world we'll get to will be one in which, despite the distortions of the Senate in particular, and gerrymandering in red states like North Carolina, purple states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, etc., we may actually see national legislation uh, in the next five years securing an abortion right in the same way that national legislation does most of the work in securing other important civil rights like anti-discrimination law, you know, much more important and constructive than the courts. Um, having said all of that, <clears throat> I think in a system like ours, um, where you're working in, 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 a, in a sort of third best rather than any of these first bests, I, I um, think with a precedent on the books like Roe and Casey, clearly with a strong substantive commitment to that, right? You don't, you don't, you want the court to uphold it and you want a court that will uphold it. And of course, that's what progressives have been fighting for and, and, and have lost in. And I think it is, it's now both time to take that fight to politics and insist that actually it, it might well be decided on the national scale and not on the state scale. And also to be thinking about what a constitutional politics would look like in which we wouldn't leave so many of these questions to the courts and we could actually take on even the content of the, of the basic law ourselves and be, be talking not just about wanting to restore Roe um, through justices, but to restore Roe through majoritarian constitutional action. So that's, so that's one, uh, West Virginia, man, I mean, it's, it's, it's in some ways a simpler version of the same point. The court is, of course, plausible, and this is what they're, they're trading on um, in the lead opinion in saying that the natural vehicle for uh, a grid transition um, would be a major act of legislation. I mean, this is, this is why for decades um, now we've had major climate bills trying to, um, to, to drive an energy transition among other measures. Um, but of course, in our, whatever we're calling it, third best, uh, it's very clear that saying that EPA can't act in the absence of that kind of legislation um, is to say that the status quo is going to stick around because it's precisely our Madisonian dysfunctions that are keeping the legislature from translating majority sentiment into, into action. Um, and so if, if the court is invoking democracy but pretending that a broken 18th century system amounts to democracy with all the distortions of federalism and all the distortions of bicameralism. Um, I, I just think it doesn't wash, especially when the issues they're choosing are the most um, kind of vividly uh, partisan conservative issues. If they want to get the court out of the business of protecting money in politics on a theory that's symmetrical with their view that Roe belongs to the people, then I'll, then I'll be interested in the thought that they at least that they have at least have some sort of consistent, principled um, idea. And a, a postscript on that: um, the the major questions doctrine that they uh, explicitly uh, embrace in West Virginia 
is is so subjective, of course, uh, what is and is not so big that Congress has to do it explicitly. But I think in some ways it's subjective in a way that's endogenous to the kind of partisan polarization that we're already talking about. I mean, it's if climate change weren't such a hot-button partisan question, hadn't been made into that by decades of political marketing on the right, uh, it might be much more straightforward to say that, to imagine, to accept that this is just a kind of natural extension of a rational management of the grid in light of new circumstances. So the political consequences of the choice, the political, the, the political majorness of it, so to speak, um, that's part of the major questions doctrine, the, the verbal formula for it, um, seems like it, it, it doesn't only permit, but, but positively invites and may even rely on um, kinds of motivated partisan reasoning. So, yeah, it just it seems like a mess to me. Yeah, no, that's a um, that's a really interesting point about the kind of endogenous nature of what constitutes a major question. Um, you know, even if there, even if we can imagine the court was, you know, the judges were doing this in some kind of neutral way. That's of course what we consider to be major or controversial is a social fact that is going to arise out of um, decisions that people make in in politics. So that's that's a really interesting point. And you know, I, I, so yeah, so so um, one question that kind of comes, I think, out of your responses there, which are very, you know, in a way that there's a lot of practicality to that, right? Which, you know, given the current setup of the of various legislatures and the way our political system works and campaign contributions and the like, the court, of course, is thinking about all of that uh, in light of what decisions it decides to keep for itself and what decisions it, it you know, uh, decides to hand over to institutions that it has a pretty good idea of what those institutions are going to do or mm-hmm. not do. Um, but so I just, w- w- one kind of just question more generally is, you know, as a, you know, for folks who are lovers of democracy and who believe in politics and believe that politics can be, you know, a, a positive and a creative generative force, you know, what do we do given the reality of, um, you know, our fairly, as you said, kind of broken 18th century system, bicameralism, the Senate structured the way it is, um, you know, various kind of federalist institutions in place that, you know, really get in the way. And as you kind of mentioned, part of the story is the extraordinary difficulty of changing the Constitution, right? And I think there are kind of two tracks that one can think here is, well, you know, uh, I think most folks who are engaged in practical politics say, look, these are the institutions that we're stuck with and we just have to work with them as best we can. So if that means moving decisions into agencies, you know, because that's where it's most likely to happen, that's what we have to do. That's still political. That's still democratic in a sense. There's elections and so on, but it's not, maybe it's not our ideal, um, but we'll live with it because that's what we have, or we'll get this decision at the national level Let's protect the states that are trying to do good things in some other way. And it's just a matter of, you know, yeah, there's democracy there, but it's, you know, it's filtered through these institutions and then we just, that we just have to live with. The other thought is, of course, big scale constitutional reform, which I, to be honest, I do have a very difficult time imagining as a practical matter, although I do like to say nothing lasts forever. Um, and I also have a very hard time imagining that we will not have had major change, um, you know, 
200, 200, 500 years from now, of course, things are going to be different. Um, and so in any case, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, as a practical matter, you know, as a lover of democracy and politics, what do you do given the, the you know, kind of uh, uh, fallen nature of our uh, real institutions in the real world? Yeah, great. Um, so in some ways, I feel that if, if the book gets people posing the question in that way, um, it's already succeeded in, in a sense. Um, to, if we can take seriously that we are in a system that isn't the apex of something called democracy at all, but is, is profoundly and even dangerously uh, limited in that way, and that we need to think in those terms um, of, of uh, in terms of an alternative between um, second best institutional work and um, more basic kinds of constitutional politics, um, then then I think um, moving on from that, uh, of course, in in any moment or in uh, any one person's thinking or commitments, it may be that those two are are mutually. Exclusive, but they they also needn't be. To some extent, you can parties and movements and so on can aim at both concurrently. You could actually think of um, the New Deal court packing crisis as one in which, although it was this less radical institutional reform in some ways that won out because the court uh, uh, bent and allowed. Uh, the second New Deal wave of legislation to go through, it was because uh, more basic, although not yet constitutionally textual change, was on was on the table. So, you know, you can have so you can um, pursue multiple kinds of reform in parallel, and if you have a consistent picture of, of where you're trying to get and why, um, I think those are not necessarily in contradiction, even though for any particular. Undertaking, they may they may be uh, alternative strategies um, or tactics. Uh, um, so I think this is sort of move to the toughest nut. Um, it would be good to have a more serious engagement among people who broadly want to see government do more, who broadly um, think of themselves as some kind of progressive or pragmatic progressive or pragmatic liberal about the um, question whether we ought to be um, fighting over Article 5, that is, whether we ought to be fighting over the feature of the Constitution that makes it um, all but impossible to change, and whether explicit constitutional reform should be an aspect of um, reformist politics now, and, and if so, what that would, would even begin to look like. I, I do think that as long as we don't think it's possible, um, it won't, <laughs> it won't, clearly won't happen. Um, I think we would we would do well to know more than we do, more than I do, actually, about the nuts and bolts of how extraordinary kinds of explicit textual reform have happened before, like taking the 
um, appointment of senators away from state legislatures, which was a change they actually had to get through state legislatures. And I do know that a lot of mobilization and a lot of voting people out was part of getting that amendment through. People thought it was possible to change the Constitution. They mobilized around it and, and they got it done. Um, so when you say, and I agree, it's hard to imagine that in 100 years or 500 years, if, this, if we're lucky enough that this country is still an ongoing concern, and that is partly up to us now, it's hard to imagine there won't have been basic constitutional change. I think we don't begin the opening to that until people are willing to think of that as um, one of the directions in which we want to push. And so I think that's, uh, I, I want I want that alternative not to be something that belongs to the cranky right, not something that is com seen as completely pie in the sky, but as something that progressives are actually, reformists are actually actively working on. And I think that looks both like trying genuinely to imagine what a strategy would look like that would change Article 5 through the terms of Article 5 itself, hard as that is to do. It has been the Constitution has been amended that way before. In some ways, we don't know quite how hard it is to do now because we stopped trying a long time ago and started looking to the courts again almost exclusively. But we do know it would be hard. We know, we know it would be very hard. Then there's the other question, just, just to note the historical parallel. You know, basic changes in the Constitution have not always complied fully with the um, formal terms of the Constitution. The, the Constitution of 1787 and 1789 itself did not, um, and um, neither did the Reconstruction Amendments, arguably, arguably in some respects, because of the um, status of the uh, Confederate, former Confederate states, basically under under occupation at the at the time of ratification. Um, so. If you agree with founders like James Wilson and even with Madison in certain moments of the Federalist Papers, that for a national charter of fundamental law, it is national majorities that have the right to change it. Um, Madison actually says this is clearly true. It's not true of our system because it's federal. Whether ours is as profoundly federal now as he presented it as being, especially after the Reconstruction Amendments, real open question. Um, then you might say that there's actually a path forward to think about trying to build majorities for the idea that we're going to um, try to find a majoritarian path to a more majoritarian constitution and hold something like a binding national vote on the question whether to amend Article 5. I mean, what would that look like? It's a direct appeal to democracy, principled, orderly, explicit, public, but it says one of these rules is too archaic, too much in the way, and too out of whack with our current commitments, and we're going to try in the way that's most consistent uh, with those commitments to uh, change it. Again, openly, publicly, no leisure domain, by an appeal to majorities. Um, I would at least, I, I think it's worth reformists thinking about the dangers and the benefits of a path like that, a democratic path to more democracy. Um, so this is all a long way of saying I, I think the questions are really hard. I certainly don't mean to say that the last thing I said would necessarily be a good idea. 
but I want people to be thinking in, in, in these terms, saying we, we haven't really got democracy here yet, and we need to think in terms of, of trying to move toward a more democratic horizon, including in our relation to the Constitution itself. Well, it's it's a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating thought experiment, at the very least, and it's a it's a it's a wonderful book that you've written. A really uh, uh, important set of ideas that you're exploring here. So, thanks so much for for the for the book, and thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a really uh, wonderful, fascinating conversation. Mike, what what a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for doing it. <laughs>